This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. We have yeah. to recognize a problem, confront it, atone for it, mm-hmm. so that we can be able to move on. You do not cure a disease by not even acknowledging that the disease exists. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Dr. Nicole Martin, and today on our show, we're talking about the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington with an Emmy Award-winning journalist who was there. We'll also talk about the declassification of marijuana, what it says about our numbing culture, and lastly, we'll talk about Jimmy Carter's long goodbye, his choice to share his journey with hospice, and what it means for all of us as we seek to live and die well. Welcome back to this week's episode of The Bulletin. My name is Nicole Martin. I'm the Chief Impact Officer at Christianity Today, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Janice Adams. Dr. Adams is an Emmy Award-winning journalist, historian, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of 11 books. She's the host of Public Radio's The Janice Adams Show and podcast. Dr. Adams, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my goodness, thank you for having me. We've got a lot to talk about specifically around the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. And for our listeners, this was a commemoration, a kind of a continuation of the March on Washington that took place on August 28th, 1963. At that time, we have reported numbers of about a quarter of a million people attending. There were 10 clear demands at that march. In fact, Jamar Tisby says that that march in 1963 should be remembered more as a labor protest for economic rights and financial security than as a moral call for a shift in racial attitudes. As you know, we remember the march most poignantly for Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Dr. Adams, you were there for the march in 1963. So what did it feel like at that time and what drove you to attend the march? Well, first of all, it was an extraordinary experience, a life lesson type experience that mm-hmm. I, I'm still here, you know, basking in it and also awed by it and a little overwhelmed by it, even today. In terms of just the presence of being there, it was made even more extraordinary for my mom and me. We went together, and I was a teenager, and this was the first time that I'd really been among that many people at one time. So that was extraordinary. But I will tell you the story of our getting there because it absolutely colors the experience that I had. My mother and I, we left our home in the Bronx to head to Harlem three o'clock in the morning for a 4 a.m. bus. And I think with prescience, the 
leader on the chartered bus said this would be a journey from which there was no turning back. And indeed, Mm. it was. In retrospect, people can say what it was about, and it was about those 10 demands. But it was also about life and death. Because when Dr. King speaks about the dream, he is really speaking to those of us who have come down and been through a nightmare. And so he is giving us fuel to go back and Mm -hmm. face what's ahead. And what was ahead on that bus ride was that when our bus got to that infamous Mason-Dixon line, when we got there, we were surrounded by a white mob and they were totally out of control, except that behind them was a row of police and sheriff's deputies Mm -hmm. who were complicit. They allowed it to happen. The mob attacked our bus. They rocked the bus from side to side. And as I say, side to side, side to side, they intended no lullaby. And finally, the bus driver, it was time for those being victimized to stop having to be the ones who are polite. Hmm. And he put his foot on the gas and got that bus out of there, and it was get out of the way or get run over. And so by the time we get to D.C., we are obviously traumatized. We are, you know, what's going to happen for the rest of this day? And when we get there, that's the transformation, because Mm -hmm. we are now surrounded by people who have already arrived before us. They see the expression on our faces. Mm -hmm. They know we've been through something. They don't ask for any explanation. They just Mm -hmm. literally embrace us one by one as we come Mm -hmm. off that bus. And we, in turn, then embrace the next group, and that Mm -hmm. group embraces the next. That was the spirit. That was the transformative power of that march. And so for me, yes, it was about seeing 250,000 people. I don't know how many were there at the time we got there. But the contrast between what we had just come through and the people who brought us into their embrace Mm -hmm. was what that day was about for me. That is a powerful image. And the fact that there was a moment, that moment when you crossed the Mason-Dixon line and felt the trauma of the assault and the decision point to say we'll continue to move forward, there seemed to be at that time a different sense of community and a community bonded in some ways by trauma and tragedy, but also a community that gathered at the march because They knew when we get here, like you said, there's someone who's going to wrap their arms around and understand collectively it's time for us to move forward. Do you feel that we have that same type of community today or what do you see as change? I see that that community exists. We have to remember that that sense of community that we had was not really shared nationwide. And Mm -hmm. the messengers of that community, I was just privileged to be featured in a Washington Post oral history of it. And the Washington Post was honest enough to present its own front pages for the day of the march and the day after. The day Mm -hmm. of the march, they were feeding into the narrative that It was going to be dangerous and black people were going to do harm to the country. The Mm -hmm. day after, 
They didn't even mention Dr. King's speech. They simply Mm. mentioned that it wasn't what they were saying. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we have to remember that those same voices are defining writ large how we are even today. But I want to put that time into context for a moment. Mm -hmm. You know, we are here talking and we always talk about progress. And I'm really tired of talking about progress because Mm -hmm. we're talking about it in a country in which in 1776, they don't want to be a colony anymore and they want independence as a colony. Within Mm -hmm. seven years, they have a country with a constitution. We are now 404 years from the time that African Americans were forced to these shores and 404 years later we're supposed to discuss progress? I appreciate that perspective because you almost have to look back in order to figure out have we really made progress? How do we help our Christian brothers and sisters to see this isn't a 1963 problem, this is a 2023 issue. I think they know that better than we do. It's hmm. a, it's about denial. And hmm. there comes a time when we each have to grow up. I'm just going to be straight out at it. We have yeah. to recognize a problem, confront it, atone for it, mm-hmm. so that we can be able to move on. You do not cure a disease by not even acknowledging that the disease exists. Mm -hmm. And right now we have on average, this is so unfathomable. We have Mm -hmm. right now on average, more innocent, unarmed African-Americans being murdered per week Mm -hmm. by police Mm -hmm. than they were people being lynched on average per week at the height of the lynching era. So what I say to those people who don't want to acknowledge it is I have to put my energies on acknowledging it and Mm -hmm. confronting it because I walk out my door and I don't know when. If you don't believe in history, then don't celebrate July 4th. Mm. Okay? Mm -hmm. If you Mm -hmm. don't believe in history, don't celebrate Thanksgiving Day. Don't celebrate Veterans Day. No, it's Mm -hmm. not that you don't believe in history. It's that you don't want to hear what happened that doesn't feel good to you. And so Mm. in a way, you are doing it again with Mm. the denial. You're repeating it because you don't, you're just saying, I don't have to respect you. And that lack of respect and regard for other people is where all of this begins. You are making such an important point about the role that denial plays and how sometimes we traditionally, Americans can use, and evangelicals especially, can use our faith to deny certain painful realities. But the crux of our faith comes in the fact that our Savior suffered. And that suffering ought to be what draws us closer to people who suffer. I get concerned that part of the issue with race and religion and politics is I have white evangelical brothers and sisters who have a reaction to the pain. They don't want to live through the pain of their ancestors. I've had people say— So they don't want this country to resurrect. Maybe they want it to resurrect, 
but only in certain ways. They want it to be great to the extent that we can ignore what was not great for other people. So, I mean, what is the role of the church? The church clearly had a role in 1963 when you were at the march. The church still has a role today. What role does the church have? The church had a role in 63. Dr. King lives to 1968, and he never changed the phrase that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning Mm -hmm. was the most segregated hour in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at what that role was of the church. And the church in 63 was perpetrating racism. Mm -hmm. The church in 63 was part of the violence. People Mm -hmm. would have Sunday picnics where Mm -hmm. they went to church Sunday morning and in their Sunday best, they took a picnic basket and they came to a lynching. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, you can say you don't want to hear it, but that doesn't mean that others don't know it. And there is nothing Mm -hmm. liberating about ignorance. Ignorance breeds confrontation. Mm -hmm. We need to acknowledge it, confront it, Mm. atone for it, so Mm -hmm. we can move on. Maya Angelou had a wonderful phrase It's time for thinking people to think. You have helped us to think very deeply about both the welcome that you received in 1963. I will remember that image just of of people, traumatized communities getting off of buses and being received and sharing that in return, but also the importance of understanding the truth and being willing to look at a painful truth so that we can move to the point of healing. Dr. Adams, you are a blessing. Thank you so much for this time. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners hear from you today? Well, you know, I just want to add, I did do a list of 10 lessons from Mm -hmm. the, that learned that day. Okay. I'm just going to read a couple. I want to remind people that Yes, we sang, we shall overcome for our spirit, uh, you know, for rallying us. But we sang, ain't going to let nobody turn me around Mm. to keep us alive. Mm. Two more things. Build relationships with people you trust. Then listen when they speak and love each other forward. And I Mm. said that because we would not have this extraordinary I Have a Dream oration but for the fact that Mahalia Jackson was sitting to the sidelines and saying to Dr. King, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about Mm. the dream. He departs from his prepared remarks and does that extemporary oration. Yes, he tested it otherwise, but he does it in that moment fueled by the power of those people. And the last thing, Some people may hear this and say, oh, look at what she said, but I'm going to say it. Stay dangerous. That's what Mm -hmm. I learned. And Mm -hmm. dangerous in the context that FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover called soon-to-be Nobel Peace Prize laureate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. the most dangerous man in America. (laughs) And I remind people that it was dangerous dangerous to be attacked as we were, yet keep Mm. on keeping on your chartered route. Mm. It was dangerous 
to embrace each other. Look at all the snipers, even then. Stay dangerous. Keep to your core. Keep to what is right. Stay dangerous. I don't know whether to say Selah or to shout or (laughs) pass the offering plate. Your lessons are just as powerful today as I'm sure when you received them. Thank you for sharing your heart with us. You've been an encouragement to me personally, and I'm so, so honored that we could share this with our listeners today. Well, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Russell Moore. Russell, how are you? I'm doing great. And with this topic, Nicole, I have to tell you, my only frustration with the bulletin is that we don't have the rights to bumper music coming in and going out, because I know exactly (laughs) what I would choose. What song would you choose? We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee would be would be one of them, and then some Bob Marley to come yes. in or, in or out mm-hmm. of would be good because we're going to talk about marijuana and yes, marijuana we are. usage because there's some news this week. Yes, there is. All right, let's dig in. All right. Well, the news is that the Department of Health and Human Services is recommending that the DEA reclassify marijuana as a Schedule Three drug. Now, mm. for most people, that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, what's the difference yeah. between Schedule One and Schedule Three? But here's what it is. I mean, Schedule One drugs are things like heroin and LSD. And Schedule Three drugs are things that don't have a lot of danger of uh, psychological Mm -hmm. dependence. And some examples of that would be codeine in pain medications, low amounts of codeine, like in Tylenol with codeine, or anabolic steroids, or testosterone. So Mm -hmm. truly Mm -hmm. toxic masculinity would be Mm -hmm. the case there. (laughs) Truly. But they're wanting to reclassify. And the reason I think this is interesting is not about what the bureaucracy classifies a a drug as, but the way that marijuana has shifted Mm -hmm. just culturally in terms Mm -hmm. of the last several years, just with states legalizing marijuana, always saying, well, we're doing that with just a very carefully controlled sort of way. And it has not gone well in many of those places. Mm -hmm. And I think what I'm concerned about, and I wonder if you agree with me on this, is that 
this is another example of kind of a numbing mm-hmm. culture that mm-hmm. we have right now yeah. that I think is a symptom of something else. I mean, when you think about marijuana, I mean, people typically, they think of kind of a Cheech and Chong, yeah. young people with mm-hmm. the tie-dye shirts on or something. But yeah. most of the people that I know who are kind of heavily into marijuana are kind of old ladies and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mm -hmm. middle-aged guys. And I think there's something going on there. What do you think? Yes, yes. I think you're right. And I think my first approach as I was reading about this news was maybe this will help on the criminal justice side. I know that, for example, there was a disproportionate amount of black and brown people being really heavily penalized for having a small amount of marijuana. So I was thinking, well, maybe that's going to help on the criminal justice side. Mm -hmm. But I do think you're right, because the people that I know who are not, by the way, doing the Cheech and Chong, you know, they don't even have to roll anything or smoke anything now to get high. They can eat something or Mm -hmm. have a gun or have a cookie, but these are people who are using marijuana because of stress, because of anxiety, because they can't make it through the day. And that's where I think we have to dig in and say, what is really happening here? I don't know if we're addressing it in a way that would allow people to have an ethical conversation about it with beyond should it be legalized or not. Yeah, I think that's right. I think part of it is, too, I mean, a lot of people will say, well, I mean, marijuana does not do nearly as much damage as Mm -hmm. alcohol does once you add up sort of alcoholism and DUIs and and so forth. And my response to that is always, yeah, that's true. But do we really need to add one more thing to the sort of not just addiction, but also there's a way to use alcohol that does not lead to drunkenness. Mm-hmm. Marijuana is always mind-altering, no mm-hmm. matter how much you're using. And it just ought to cause us to say, what on earth is going on that so many of us want to zone out? Yes. And zone out in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are lonely They don't know how to kind of let go of themselves by Mm -hmm. absorbing into relationship with other Mm -hmm. people, whether in family or neighborhood or church. Mm -hmm. And that just seems to me it's just getting worse. And the availability does make a difference. You know, I think about just how easy it is, again, going to a dear friend who started out using marijuana as part of their medications. You know, they come out of really stressful time, a little bit of PTSD. And so the doctor recommended perhaps marijuana will help. Well, that time has passed and this person is continuing to use marijuana. And for them, it's so much easier now to pick up something than it is to actually get myself to a quiet place and pray and seek the Lord or call a prayer partner or get in a Bible study. So I wonder, how do we help people think differently about this when accessibility often means permission? If I can get it, and if it's easy, then it must be okay. Well, and that's, I think, what happened. I mean, if you look at the path to legalization everywhere where that's happened, it almost always starts with medical marijuana. And so the case that's being made is, well, think about somebody who has bone cancer, and this is reducing pain in Mm -hmm. a way that's more effective than, say, opioids or or, or something else. And I think everybody would have genuine compassion and say, well, we need to have substances that we wouldn't use in Mm -hmm. everyday life for people Mm -hmm. who are in serious pain. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that medical term 
is so vague that it starts to be in all of these jurisdictions, you can get a prescription to go to the dispensary for almost anything. I mean, somebody who wouldn't classify that has got to be really living a triumphant pain-free life. And there aren't many of those. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even going back to the songs that you mentioned, the culture has created a culture of numbness that's acceptable. I mean, there are lots of songs that talk about being numb. There's the purple haze. There's Mm -hmm. a sense that you need this kind of euphoria. And I liked the way that William Struthers put it in one of our articles. This is several years ago in a CT article where he talked about the progression from I need this for my healing to I need this to have a good time to I have a right to have this. I'm entitled to have this. And even if I don't have this, my life is lacking something. It's just a small progression. And then all of a sudden you need marijuana to have a good time in the same way that you quote unquote need alcohol in some ways. Yeah, I'm just really concerned about how we're thinking about it, not necessarily the legality, but how do we think about this as a church? Well, and even, I mean, we we mentioned the songs. I joked about the songs, Mm -hmm. but you can see the cultural shift happening there. I mean, in the 60s, early 70s, Merle Haggard is singing, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee, Oklahoma, (laughs) as a way of saying, hey, we're not hippies. We're not counterculture. That's what we do. By the time of Merle Haggard's death. I mean, I was at uh, one of the last Merle Haggard concerts uh, right down the road from me here at the Ryman Auditorium. And he stood up and said something about smoking weed. He had a a song that came out later called It's All Going to Pot with Willie Nelson, you know, kind of joking around about using marijuana. And when he mentioned, yeah, I kind of use marijuana, everybody cheered and you're like, okay, wow. this is a this is a country music audience mm-hmm. in the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Mm-hmm. That's not simply a kind of well. That's what the counterculture does. That's really becoming, sadly, I think, yep. one of the unifying aspects of American life is mm-hmm. the is the use of marijuana. And I mean, like you say, it's easy to say, okay, well, this is going to help me with the problem. And mm-hmm. these things always are introduced as I'm your friend Yes, until suddenly they're not and they actually yep. make the problem worse. So I don't know if you heard last December, Jamal Bryant, pastor of a very large church, New Birth Church in Atlanta, decided that he was going to start a cannabis business to bring black men to church. Hmm. So slightly controversial. Uh, I'm I'm being joking slightly, but his idea was if our church offers a legal way for black men to do in the context of Christian community what they do outside of it, then perhaps that would be a draw. Oh my goodness, there was such an uproar. He had to do a series of sermons on, I don't want black men to be high. It was really intriguing. And I mean, he was going from the perspective of, well, I want to you know, give them a legal, credible way. It was hard. I guess he made an argument that it was difficult for black men to get a license to sell cannabis in Atlanta. But at the core, this was a pastor advocating for cannabis as a tool of witnessing. Hmm. So I wonder... I wonder what you think about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you could take that principle in all kinds of directions, oh I would think. But you know who I think is wise to this? The Christians I know 
who have the clearest eyed, both biblically and culturally, perspective on this stuff are recovering addicts. Because they're the people who have kind of walked through this whole process of rationalization and they know what that's like. Yes. And they're often the ones who, no, that's not the direction we need to go. And also they're the ones who are able to come in and help other people to say, you know, there there actually is a way Mm -hmm. to deal with pain and suffering and grief and loneliness that isn't just zoning out. Yeah, agreed. And there is a way for the church to help us realize you're not going to use Jesus as the replacement drug. We're not saying don't smoke marijuana because Jesus can numb you from your pain. What we're saying is there is a place in the faith expression and experience where pain has value. It's what it means to be alive. And we've got a Bible that's pulsating with Mm -hmm. every aspect of emotion and human life. There's lament, there's anger, there's joy, there's happiness, there's all of those things. And if you shut one of those things off, Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean they go away. Yeah, It just means that you don't feel it, which Mm -hmm. ultimately means you don't feel anything. Mm. And that's just not what a joyful human life is about. I'm still very moved by the way that Philip Yancey and Paul Brand talked about this in their book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, about how leprosy affects the body. Yeah. That when one part of the body loses its sensitivity, the nerve endings lose their sensitivity, the danger is not to that part of the body. The danger is to the rest of the body that's not able to get a signal of pain. So leprosy in the foot causes bone issues and broken bones in the leg. It's not just the foot. So it it makes sense. When you numb a certain part of your life, you turn off the nerve endings in another part of your life that needs to be hypersensitive and aware to the presence and the power of God. All right. Everybody stay sober. We'll be right back in just a minute. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back here on the bulletin. Nicole, I think all the time about my grandmother who was in hospice. She had hospice personnel nurses who were there at the house. And for a long time, I mean, I think for a lot of years, people assumed hospice was just at the very, very end of a person's life. Yes. That they were there caring for her for so long. And one day she said to me, you know, these physical therapists just aren't doing anything. (laughs) And I had to say, um, they're actually hospice. And she said, oh, well, I'm glad you didn't tell me that at the first. It would have scared me to death. (laughs) And I said, well, yeah, I think hospice is a bit more expensive than what we used to think. And by the end of her life, there was nobody that she was praising other than Mm -hmm. Jesus more Mm -hmm. than hospice and the way that they took care of her. And I thought about that this week because President Jimmy Carter, of course, who announced a while back his inoperable cancer, went into hospice care. 
And now Rosalind Carter, his mm-hmm. wife, has gone into hospice care too because of mm-hmm. some dementia-related illnesses. And President Carter's grandson was talking about kind of how they're doing. He said their faith remains strong. They're praying together. They're holding hands. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very sweet picture that was there. And I think for a lot of people, we'll have a lot more to say about President Carter and his legacy. We pray that's a long time from now, mm-hmm. that he's actually able to have a good life uh, together mm-hmm. with Mrs. Carter in hospice for a long time. But it really brought up the fact that there are a lot of people who don't understand hospice because you don't really see it unless you're walking with somebody who's been in that place of terminal illness or if you've been in it yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it'd be really good to talk to somebody who has thought about this a Mm -hmm. lot, and that's Clarissa Mull, who's, of course, part of our bulletin team here, and Mm -hmm. she's an award-winning writer and podcaster, and one of her primary aspects of ministry is helping people through loss. She co-hosted CT's Surprised by Grief podcast, and her book called Beyond the Darkness, A Gentle Guide for Living with Grief and Thriving After Loss was a best-selling new release in 2022. And her Mm -hmm. three new grief books for children, for teens, and for adults is coming out. Those are coming out in 2024 and 2025. She's the producer of The Bulletin and... Mm -hmm. She is the widow of former Christianity Today editor Rob Mall. Clarissa, welcome. I can't say welcome to the Bulletin because you're always here at the Bulletin. <laughs> you're always but, I am here, but lurking welcome, behind the scenes. <laughs> welcome verbally to the Bulletin. <laughs> yes. Thank you. What do you think when you think about hospice and hospice care and, and its place in American life right now? Well, I have to say... I used to think that hospice care meant loss. The only people I knew who went into hospice were very elderly. Their time was very short. But it wasn't until my husband, Rob, became a hospice volunteer that I began to see the expansive nature of hospice. He became a hospice volunteer while he was working at CT, and he used to visit folks on the weekends around the Wheaton area and just sit with them. Rob was a journalist. He didn't have specialized medical care. He wasn't a pastor. He just sat and held folks' hands. He talked to families as they were beginning the grieving process. And it was through that experience and the conversations he would come home with that we would sit around the table talking about what it meant to die and what it Mm. meant to grieve that I began to see hospice as something that was far bigger than anything I had imagined. That it was both the routine care, the continuous care that patients needed when they chose palliative care over corrective measures or curative measures, but it was a lot of respite care for families. It was bereavement care happening not just after the person's death, but in the days before. And hospice has been a tremendous gift in many families' lives that I've interacted with over the last four years as I've worked in bereavement advocacy. You know, I was talking closer to somebody several months ago. I had a friend who was in the last days of his life. He knew that he was near the end. He was actually in hospice care. And another friend said, I didn't really know what to do with somebody who they really don't think they're going to get better. They know they're not going to get better. Do you talk about that? Do you say goodbye or is that going to alarm the person? Or do you just try to talk about other things and kind of get the person's mind off of all of that for a little while? 
What do you think hospice teaches us about just regular folks like us, how we treat people that we know are are nearing the end for them. We have a lot of trouble talking about death in general, right? In yeah. our culture, we like anti-aging serums. We mm-hmm. like the fountain of youth. We do not like to think about aging unless it's the sort of silver fox Hollywood star. Mm-hmm. We, we can get into mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But a conversation about wrinkles and our bodies breaking down, it, things start to get really awkward. And hospice gives us the language to talk about those things in an ordinary way. You know, after my husband Rob died, I've noticed that people didn't want to say his name anymore. And Mm -hmm. I had one friend confess, I think it would just make you sadder if I talked about him. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, no, this is really good. If you talk Mm -hmm. about him, it it normalizes what I've experienced. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And hospice does the same thing for folks as they approach the dying process and then afterwards as they grieve by talking more about the realities of a body that's closing down, about what comes after. It actually prepares both the dying person to face what is Mm -hmm. ahead and also prepares their community of support so Mm -hmm. that in the end, when death inevitably comes, they're not bereft of language and resources to help them navigate the experience of rebuilding a life without their person. I so appreciate this conversation. This past week was the one-year anniversary of my dad's passing, and the funeral was August 30th. This is the 31st that we're recording this, so it would have been yesterday, one year ago, and I remember the day in the doctor's office, it was about eight months before he passed, when the doctors said those dreaded words, there's nothing more we could do. And at that time, they gave my mom hospice information, and this was our first experience with hospice as well. So we began that, what my counseling has taught me is anticipatory grief, that hospice kind of enters you into a pre-grief stage and prepares you for what will ultimately come. But the value for me of the hospice team was just having people who knew what would come next. You know, I'd experienced other people passing away. In our church ministry, it was not uncommon, even as a staff minister, to be called to the bedside of a dying family member or to be there when that person took their last breath. But it was different when it was my own father. And to have someone next to us every week saying, this is probably what's going to happen next. I've seen it before. You're going to be okay. They're going to be okay. But also to have the tools and resources to say, what can we do to keep your loved one comfortable? That team, like you said, that team became such a blessing to us. And even now, I look back on those times and thank God that we had someone who could walk us through it. And you know, there is no too late to begin those kind of conversations. I think of the reconciliation that can come Mm -hmm. with families. You know, a lot of folks, they have one caregiver who's nearby to a dying relative and family is spread across the United States, sometimes around the globe. They fly in and see rapid decline. Mm -hmm. They don't Mm -hmm. see the slow progression of disease. And so oftentimes they come in and they say, oh, it's too late. There's nothing we can do. And they pursue invasive medical procedures Mm -hmm. that we know studies have shown us that people who are more devout pursue rigorous medical interventions, even up to the end, far more than those who claim no faith. Mm. And so we have folks who are scrambling at the very end. And hospice comes in with this sense of peace to say, no, there is no rush. There is no rush. We can take the time we need. Mm -hmm. We can have 
have the conversations that we need to have. And even if you're showing up at the 11th hour, you are not too late to participate in the sacred transitioning of this person from mm. this life into eternity. And I appreciate that level-headedness and that calm and comforting demeanor from folks, like you say, who have seen this over and over again. They're wise guides. How about, Clarissa, people who I had an elderly preacher, one of the most mature Christians I've ever known, who said, I don't know, I think about Hebrews 2, we're freed from that slavery to fear of death. He said, and I'm not afraid of death because I'm really confident in the Lord Jesus. My hope is there. I believe in heaven, but I'm really scared of dying. What have you learned from hospice and from grief work about kind of helping people to prepare for that? Well, it's a natural fear. I think it's part of the fear that has embedded in us since the curse. We know that things are wrong and that our interaction with death shows us that the world is not as it should be. And so it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be afraid. And yet, J.I. Packer, in this beautiful little book he has called Finishing Our Course with Joy, he says that as we commit ourselves fully to the Lord, that his approaching return for us in death should become more alluring than alarming. And I really mm. love that phrase, yeah. that as we pray, Lord, cultivate within me a desire to meet you again, that our fear of death is somewhat allayed by the reality that we will see Jesus face to face. You know, Martin Luther, he struggled a lot with this sort of thing as he wrestled with his own fears of death. And so he went back to things like communion, to the Lord's table. He said, I go here and I touch these elements and I remember the truth of who I am, that I am redeemed by the Lord. So for some folks, it's that kind of tangible reminder that they need, that I need no longer fear death in its ultimate form because of what Jesus has done for me. And for some folks, it's a, a vibrant prayer life that can help to allay those fears. But I think hospice reminds us that in the end, it's the honesty that really dispels a lot of the fears that we have as we approach death. And this goes not just for older folks, but for young people as well. You know, mm -hmm. hospice care is tremendous in that it offers, because of government regulations, it offers both palliative care and curative care mm -hmm. to anyone under 18 that qualifies. Wow. And so a lot of times we think of hospice as something for old folks, mm -hmm. but hospice has tremendous resources, even for families with a child who is terminally ill. Mm. And so that tension between seeking a cure and seeking palliative care, it doesn't even need to exist if you have a child who uh, is in need of hospice care. Those services are available to them as well. I appreciate you naming that this isn't just for the elderly, because even in that, there's a reminder that our process of dying and even the fear of dying can affect us at every age of life, especially in a time when we are constantly exposed to mass murders and constantly exposed to news that shows us how short life is, our ability to embrace dying and death as a pathway to being in the presence of God and having eternal life, that conversation is critically important at any age. So it sounds like we've got some work to do in terms of preparing churches to talk about this beyond, you know, preparing your will, but really preparing your heart and mind. Clarissa, do you think the church is getting better with this? I like to think so. And I don't think it's my cockeyed optimism. <laughs> I do think that, you know, COVID 
It gave us over 1 million deaths. And Mm. studies show that that was five grieving family members in kinship circles for every one death. So we've got a lot Mm. of grieving people. And I think we've had to learn on the fly over the Mm. last few years how to do this. But I do think that we are doing a better job. I see organizations like GriefShare expanding their ministries in churches. I see support groups for siblings, widowers, Mm. any group of men that is grieving is underserved. Those things are very important. And, you know, of course, there's more that we can do. We can be a community of death and resurrection. Mm. And so when churches engage with hospice, it's a beautiful partnership. There are many folks who enter hospice because of the care they themselves have received as a grieving person, losing a family member. And hospice is very open to faith. While it's not a faith-based organization, it certainly is open to faith. So, you know, if your church is looking for a way to get involved, offering respite care through a hospice organization in your town is a great way to start to dismantle some of those walls that you have around yourself that protect you, that numb you from interacting with people who are dying. And then faithful presence is always the way to go, right? It's sitting beside the widow in church so she doesn't have to sit alone. It's making sure that the family with a child with terminal illness isn't forgotten, that the meal train continues after the surgical procedure is over, Mm. but may continue for many months after a child has come from the hospital. As Christians, we're committed to loving each other well and to loving for the long term. And hospice does a really good job of showing us what that can look like. That's a good word. And may all of us who have come to know what it means to not perish, but to have everlasting life, learn to love the perishing around us in an earthly sense, even as we hold to the reality that that's the last enemy to be destroyed. Clarissa Mall, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. To hear Dr. Janice Adams' complete list of 10 lessons she learned from her experience at the 1963 March on Washington, visit youtube.com slash Christianity Today magazine. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mole and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing is by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design by Brian Todd. And graphic design by Amy Jones. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.